Across Japan, millions of residents are adjusting to self-quarantine and working from home in response to Prime Minister Abe Shinzo's recent declaration of a state of emergency. As a result, some areas of Tokyo are practically deserted as stores close down and people avoid gathering in large groups. In Tokyo, with its nearly empty streets and many shuttered shops, about 38 million people are under a stay-home advisory this weekend across the entire metropolitan area. Yet the coronavirus pandemic is exposing a reality at odds with Japan's international reputation as a nation of futuristic high-tech. Many residents simply cannot work or learn from home, as businesses and universities lack the necessary digital infrastructure to allow access from a distance. For many in Japan, this might be the first time they've had to struggle with access, or had a reason to stop and think about limits on accessibility or mobility more broadly. In this context, it is all the more timely and instructive to reflect on the history of disability in Japan, as disabled peoples living and working in the country have long faced obstacles to accessible spaces of residence, work, and leisure. How have understandings of disability in Japan changed over time? How has the coronavirus pandemic called attention to limits on accessibility across the country? And what silver linings might the coronavirus pandemic have in regards to increasing accessibility? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of disability in Japan, I talked with Mark Bookman, a PhD candidate in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a visiting researcher at the University of Tokyo Research Center for Advanced Science and Technology and research associate at Nanzan University. He is also the co-author recently of Facing the COVID-19 Crisis in Japan with a Disability, published in the Japan Times. I started by asking Mark to outline how understandings of disability have changed in Japan over time. Let me start with how I came to this topic, because that'll help frame what I mean when I say that disability changes over time and, and, and it's been constructed in numerous ways. So I'm a wheelchair user, and I came to Japan in 2014 on a Fulbright grant to study esoteric Buddhism. As part of that, I had to go around to temples and shrines and speak with a bunch of monks there to, to do my field work. Now, I'm not sure how many temples you've been to, but you can probably imagine they have a lot of stairs. And being in a wheelchair, I was not able to overcome those stairs. And at some point, I started asking myself, you know, wh why do I care what monks think if I can't get in the front door at their temples? So at some point, I moved from religious studies, which was my primary area of research, into a study of disability. And I realized that, you know, different disabilities are treated in different ways. Just because my wheelchair couldn't get up a flight of stairs doesn't mean that someone with a hearing impairment or a visual impairment would be affected in the same way. But they would have other barriers they would encounter. So, you know, if they wanted to chant a mantra but couldn't speak, that might affect the way that they engage in, in religious practice. So I was interested in these kind of questions, and I had the idea of, well, wait a minute, why is it that engagement with spaces, religious or otherwise, look different for people with different kinds of disabilities? 
why was it that some people were privileged with access and some people weren't? You know, what did it mean to be disabled in Japan anyway? So when I asked myself that question, I started kind of looking back in history to explain why did I have the experience I did of not being able to get into temples in 21st century Japan. And I realized that I really had to go pretty far back to figure out where the origins of my experience lied. So the history of disability in Japan can be divided into a number of periods. We have a period starting with the Meiji Restoration in 1868, which goes until the beginning of World War II. During that period, disability groups capitalized on things like industrialization and urbanization to establish national networks. During World War II, those groups worked with the Japanese government to provide welfare to wounded veterans who needed specialist care. After the war, they found a new ally in the occupying forces who worked with them under the guise of democratization and demilitarization, as well as egalitarianism, to establish rights to disabled groups that had been historically marginalized. The third phase of disability activism in Japan starts after the creation of Japan's first disability welfare law in 1949. The only impaired individuals to participate in the drafting of that law were blind. So as a result, that law reflected the needs of blind groups and their allies and did not necessarily reflect the needs of other groups whom they might have been unaware, for instance, individuals with chronic illnesses or mental disabilities. So, as a result, when Japan entered into its economic miracle in the 1950s and new types of disability began to emerge tied to old age, tied to Japan's growing urban infrastructure, which meant pollution, new types of illness, those new disabilities were not accounted for under the law. In the late 1960s, the Japanese government began to build institutions to house the growing number of disabled individuals. But those institutions were built outside of town because of cheap land, it was difficult to visit, and they became breeding grounds for abuse. That abuse in the 1970s led disabled activists to come together and form a rights movement that would push out into the community and lobby for things like access to education, transportation, and employment. Initially, the efforts of that movement were unsuccessful because if they changed education, it didn't mean that they changed transportation, and you might be able to get into school, but you could not get onto the train to get there. Things started to change in the next phase of disability in the early 1980s when international exchanges led to the creation of independent living centers that provided key services to disabled populations and allowed them to enter into their communities and leave institutions in large numbers. The passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1991 and the emergence of Japan's aging population against the backdrop of the economic bubble crash in the early 90s meant that those groups found new ways of pressuring the government into passing policies that would allow them to have access to their communities. Finally, in 2000, they passed Japan's first law that mandated accessibility of public transportation. Since that moment, there have been a number of laws passed to promote access for persons with disabilities. Among them, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was ratified by Japan in 2014, and the Law for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Persons with Disabilities was enacted in 2016. Those laws have facilitated further developments in transportation, education, employment, but just like in the 1970s, those different spheres have not necessarily been connected. A wheelchair user might be able to get out of their front door but not get into their workplace. These issues 
remain and are exacerbated by things like the aging population and the upcoming Olympic Games, which have driven specialists in every field to develop accessibility on their own terms and not necessarily in coordination with other actors around them. That lack of coordination is now all the more visible against the backdrop of the coronavirus. And it's now that we can work on that lack of coordination, in my opinion, to establish a new future for people with disabilities. Your anecdote about going to temples only to realize that you couldn't gain access is an excellent reminder of how able-bodied individuals might not always be mindful of obstacles to accessibility in everyday life, especially in Japan. And now that I think about it, even the Genkan entryway in an ordinary Japanese house makes them inaccessible to wheelchair users. But on that last point, you just mentioned about how coronavirus is impacting people in different ways. As he said, this is bringing to the forefront new limits to accessibility, but also new opportunities. In the article, you talk specifically about how COVID-19 has changed the way people with disabilities in Japan approach barriers to education, employment, and communication. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you have in mind? So people with disabilities in Japan who have long been pushing for things like telework that would enable them to work from their homes if they're not able to leave easier, or work from their hospital beds, for instance, have now found new ways of appealing to broader audiences as everyone, disabled and non-disabled, grapples with access issues today in the wake of corona. With everyone turning to telework, they found new ways of vocalizing their concerns about not being able to get access to things like employment. As people turn to remote education and universities are teaching classes online, they've found new ways to vocalize their struggles for education. Disabled groups have begun to capitalize on the experiences that non-disabled people are having to show them what they need to be able to have access. But more importantly, Disabled groups that have been pushing for these things for so long, that have been arguing for things like telework for many, many years at this point, are the experts in that field because they've been grappling with it. So non-disabled individuals have so much to learn from their disabled counterparts who have been working in these spheres. You know, with that understanding, many activists today are now finding ways to position themselves as experts who can help non-disabled people grapple with this tough time. That's an excellent point about how this is a time when we can all learn from people with more experience thinking about accessibility. And in fact, in the article, you suggest that if there is a silver lining to the pandemic and to what's going on, it's that it presents an opportunity to make progress on making Japan more accessible to people with disabilities. Can you elaborate on this point a little bit more? So as I mentioned earlier, a lot of Japan's accessibility has been developing at a rapid pace, but it's been extraordinarily disconnected. Well, those disconnects are being revealed right now as a result of COVID. So what do I mean by that? Well, non-disabled people are starting to realize how if you can't get access to the train, that means you're not going to work. Or if you can't get access to work, that means that you don't have the money to go to the supermarket. Or if you don't have access to the supermarket, that changes how you approach the rest of your life. The disconnects are becoming apparent to those who take them for granted because their bodies tend to fit the way that society is already built or has been built. What I'm suggesting is that as they become aware of those disconnects, and as disabled individuals are able to call attention to those disconnects, we're going to see a way of coordinating access between spheres, between education, employment, transportation, technology, information. 
that will allow for a better experience of accessibility, that will allow for new possibilities of social participation, that will allow for new forms of disability justice, not just in Japan, but across the world. What's being developed in Japan right now? Caregiving robots. These things will be sent abroad. They will change access in places far beyond Japan. You know, we were talking earlier about how blind groups were the ones leading the charge for quite a long time in the history of disability welfare. It was partially because of their efforts, that tactile pavement, the little bumps you see on the sidewalk to help visually impaired individuals find their way around, were invented in Japan. Those things have since been sent overseas. They're now commonplace in the U.S. What we're going to see as a result of COVID in Japan is technical innovation and coordination in ways that will affect the entire world. And likewise, the way that COVID is affecting disability in places far beyond Japan will reverberate back into this country. And we're going to see changes to the Japanese accessibility infrastructure from the way that disease has affected populations abroad. What we're talking about with COVID-19 is nothing less than a global transformation of access. That's an excellent point, again, about the tactile strips. And I think listeners who have spent some time in Japan will recognize these on the sidewalks, for example. And it's a great example of how getting more disabled people involved in policymaking can lead to more responsive efforts to promote accessibility, both in Japan and elsewhere. And on that note, I understand that you yourself are involved in some policymaking as well. But for the rest of us listeners who would like to learn more, maybe do what we can to support accessibility efforts, are there resources we should look at or maybe other advocacy groups we can support? So one of the key resources you're going to want to look at is the archives maintained by Disabled Persons International Japan, or DPI Japan. They're one of the largest disability NGOs in Japan, and they maintain excellent records in both English and Japanese about disability issues and about the way that activists are working today. If you're interested in the sort of global transformations that I mentioned, I gave a TED Talk about this topic not too long ago, called Paralympics as Possibility. You might check that out as as a resource. But the other thing is that a lot of these policies are changing day by day. A lot of the ways that they're enacted is changing day by day. And the way to keep track of that is really through crowdsourcing on social media. So I've been a very large advocate of crowdsourcing technologies as a way of gathering information about accessibility in Japan and elsewhere and sharing that information so that we can collectively get as many people involved in the policymaking process to make sure that disability policy represents as many diversities as possible. One project that I've worked on with others is called the Accessibility Mapping Project, which is essentially a crowdsourced map where anyone can contribute information about accessibility onto a map of a city and say, well, from my perspective, this building is accessible because it has a wheelchair-accessible door, or this building is not accessible because it doesn't have a prayer space. From their own perspectives, whatever they need, lactation rooms, gender-neutral bathrooms, any kind of access need can be represented and shared through these crowdsourcing technologies in a way that lets us think about issues we may not have identified as access before. So, for instance, I was surprised that lactation rooms were needed in some spaces. I had never thought about them, but when I heard it, of course, it's an access need for many people. By sharing that type of information on social media and by tracking how that information changes over time, we can reimagine spaces 
both the ones that are being talked about and the ones that we work in every day in ways that make them more accessible for more groups of people. You know, I've been speaking a lot about crowdsourcing technologies, about social media, about the way that disability policy and disability activism in Japan is changing on a day-by-day basis. This is not something that just people with disabilities are involved in, and this is not something that just Japanese people are involved in. What you do in the space that you are in reverberates back to Japan. And it shapes disability here, just as what disability activists are building now is going to change social infrastructures where you are. So it's important that we think about how our actions might contribute to the creation of accessibilities, both in Japan and elsewhere. And I'd encourage the listeners for this podcast to think about how their everyday activities, getting out of bed, getting on the train, going to school, going to work, create or reinforce certain kinds of accessibility, to think about who's left out of those types of accessibility, and what you can do personally to build the world in a way that will include more people. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news, hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.